This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. From oatmeal to oysters, the world's food supply is being drastically altered by rising temperatures and extreme weather. So we've got to figure out how to reduce waste of every different product all over the planet, because that's probably the easiest strategy to get enough food that we need by 2050. Keeping the world fed as the planet heats up means rethinking our approach to food production and distribution, and maybe rethinking some of our recipes. If we could replace just 30% of a beef patty with mushrooms, it's the equivalent of 2.3 million cars off the road. It's the water usage of 2.6 million Americans. It's bringing land back into new uses about the size of Maryland. How climate change will change the way we eat. Up next on Climate One. climate change heating up the world's food production. Welcome to Climate One. As the planet gets hotter, it's affecting many of the foods we love, when and where they're grown, how they get to the grocery store, and how much we pay for them. On today's program, we'll talk about migrating crops, shrinking grasslands, and how food producers and restaurants are using technology to better predict and adapt to the new food normal. Today's Climate One program was recorded live at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. Greg Dalton's guests are three experts on the global food system. Ashley Allen is Senior Manager for Climate and Land at the Mars Corporation. Jason Clay is Senior Vice President of Food and Markets at the World Wildlife Fund. And Annie Cole is Director of Communications at the Good Food Institute, which advocates for a plant-based diet. Later in the program, we'll talk with Karen Leibowitz, co-founder of The Perennial, an environmentally sustainable restaurant. From Duke University, here's our conversation about how our diets will be affected by climate change. Ashley Allen, uh, let's begin with you. Tell us you know, today, how is climate change affecting the food and the, 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 that Mars produces? What are the impacts today? So much of the climate conversation is about far away, time and place. What's happening today? Sure, good question. Well, let me start by just mentioning a little bit about Mars for, so that everyone kind of understands uh, mm-hmm. how we're exposed to this issue. So many people know Mars for our famous brands, M&M's, Twix, uh, Snickers bars. Um, but we're not just a candy company. We're also a food company and a pet company. And I'm not talking about feeding your dog chocolate. Please don't do that. Uh, what I'm really talking about is major brands like Pedigree, Whiskas, Iams. We own those too. Uh, you can imagine with that portfolio, we source thousands of ingredients from over 80 countries around the world. And, and that really is a large value chain that's exposed to climate change in a lot of different contexts in a lot of different countries. So luckily for Mars, thinking about sustainability and issues like climate change is really in our DNA. So it's part of our founding principles. We emphasize taking responsibility for uh, our impact on people and the planet. And we also believe that doing things that provide a mutual benefit, not just for us, but for our consumers and for our partners and suppliers and the farmers that produce our goods, provides a benefit that actually is going to endure over the long term. So that's kind of the way we see the world, the way that we look at um, issues like climate change. We have seen impacts on our value chain, on the crops that we need to grow the products that we produce. One example um, is uh, in cocoa. Cocoa's always faced challenges, diseases, um, weather constraints, and things like that. But climate change, if you, use, if you see it the way uh, the military, for example, looks at it, climate change is a threat multiplier. So it makes things like water stress, Um, disasters, weather events, and diseases worse. So the trends that we already have been tackling for a number of years, we're now seeing get worse. One other example, um, and uh, we actually have our, our expert, our Mars expert in the room on this issue, and that is aflatoxins. That sounds kind of scary, and it is. Uh, so aflatoxins are a, uh, naturally occurring foodborne toxin 
that uh, occurs in grains and it can cause liver cancer and stunt growth. Um, and it's naturally occurring, but it uh, amplifies and magnifies in the kinds of conditions that climate change creates. So hotter, wetter, exactly sorts of things. Yeah. So okay, one more thing to worry, add that to your climate worry list. But to, to, to get to chocolate, which is what you know, Mars is known for, is it affecting supply? Is it affecting price? Is it going to affect? And we'll get to Jason in a minute. But most of it comes from just a couple of countries. That's right. That's right. You know, it's it's difficult because of the way climate change works. It affects every country in the world, every population in the world. It's hard to pinpoint one particular impact on climate change or to put a cost on something and attribute that to climate change. Mm -hmm. okay. But like I said, really you have to look at the trends and you know how things that you've known over history are changing in current times. Jason Clay, let's get to have you set the big picture. You're thinking you follow the global food system. Where are climate impacts most noticeable today? How's it affecting the way that we feed the world? Well, I think where climate impacts on food are most noticeable is where we have data. And where we have data, we see it everywhere. So it's already starting to affect where and how we produce food. Just some little examples you heard about West Africa. The impact of climate change on disease in West Africa has caused about a third of production to go down by 90 percent, a third of production to go down about 10 percent, and the final third to be well above what it used to be because that cocoa is now being produced in what used to be national parks and protected areas. So those areas have better soils and they have lower temperatures than the traditional places where cocoa was being produced. There's less stress on those plants. But we're also seeing climate change in the Midwest. We're seeing about every 20 or 30 years new crops are being produced. We don't produce oats commercially in the, U in the United States anymore. They're in Canada. They're in Scandinavia. Quaker Oats closed its last operation in northwest Missouri about five years ago. We won't be producing spring wheat in the U.S. within 30 years. It's all being moved north because it's too hot. The Corn Belt will be in Canada within 80 years. Cotton production in Kansas doubled last year. Now, I don't know if you know much about cotton, but it's traditionally a southern crop. It's not a Midwestern crop. In 2100, the cotton belt will be southern Minnesota and northern Iowa. Nobody's talking about this. In 15 to 20 years, California is not going to be the food basket for the U.S. It's going to be too hot. It's also going to have too, too much cold and weather variability. The almond crop froze this year, at least near Fresno. So that's going to affect almond production. We don't have as much water for irrigation because the snow is melting too fast and we can't keep it and hold it for the last crop of the year. Land is too expensive. Labor is too expensive. Land prices in California are between twenty dollars and $100,000 an acre. That's a lot of money to invest in food production. You've got to make a high return on that kind of, of land. So where's the next California going to be? And this isn't just a U.S. issue. Every country has a California. Where's every country's California going to be in 20 years? It's not going to be where it is today. That we know. I don't know if you've followed the Belt and Road program from China, which is seen as mostly a way to increase Chinese trade, more of manufactured goods and, and services, and, and a two-way street uh, between Canada, most of the countries in Russia, Europe, and even Eastern Africa. But what happens if you look at, at what is happening in the U.S. and what we know about U.S. and Canadian agriculture, and you superimpose that over what's happening in Asia, soybeans were tripled, the area planted soybeans tripled in the Russian Far East uh, in the last decade. Who even knew they were producing soybeans in the Russian Far East? The China Belt and Road Program goes through the Russian steppes, the Russian Far East, and the stands in Inner Asia areas that have never been farmed. China has farming permits for those lands. This is where China is expecting to produce food grains for the country. And why is this feasible or even likely? Well, in Canada, between Edmonton and Saskatoon, in 2000, they could grow four crops. Today, 15 years later, 16 years later, they can grow 22. 
the growing season is three weeks longer in the Dakotas than it was 10 to 15 years ago. This is what's causing the, the move of crops north. So these are the kinds of things that I think are happening with food. So it isn't just a question of what you're going to be eating. It's also a question of where it's going to be coming from. And that's going to be shifting a lot, even within the breadbaskets of the world. Does it mean that, enough, that there'll be insufficient calories produced? If, if the supply shifts to different places, uh, then that's okay. So there'll be some disruption, dislocation. Uh, Jason Clary, concerned about total calorie production to feed seven or nine billion people. So back in the day when most people were farmers, calories were really important, or when most people were miners or whatever. Today, nutrients are important, and proteins are important. And having a balanced, nutritious diet is important. Calories per se are not the big issue. If, if it were calories, we could all eat starches. We could eat a loaf of bread. But that wouldn't give us the protein we need. You have to eat two kilos of bread to get the amount of protein you need in a day. So that's not going to work for us. We've got to get a balanced diet. And where that comes from is going to be very interesting. I think you know, we're starting to map not just at a global level and then by continent and then by specific countries, what, what are the impacts of producing animal-based proteins all the way down through plant-based proteins, going through, through eggs and milk and fish, wild-caught and aquaculture, all the way down to pulses and chickpeas and other crops to see what the differences are between them, but also what the range is. And often it's 100 to 1,000 times the range within split peas or lentils in terms of how many impacts there are to produce it, whether you produce it in central Canada, in India, in some other part of the world. So the issue from an environmental point of view is how something is produced. That's where the impacts come from, not where it's produced. Transportation is not a significant factor in greenhouse gas emissions with any of the foods we eat, unless you're talking about air freight. That's the one variable that you do have to be careful about. But for everything else, all the eight major food types if you look at the, where the greenhouse gases are, are coming from, it's not from the transportation, it's from where they and how they were produced. So food miles are overstated for those people who want to, those locavores. Perfect segue to, to Annie Cole. Tell us about how you want to shift the way animal protein is, is created. Not to say meat is bad, but a new kind of meat. Right. So uh, the Good Food Institute uh, is also focused on this issue of how can we better feed people without starving the planet. And we're coming at it from kind of a different way. We, we function like a think tank for two sort of growing market sectors, um, plant-based meats and clean meat. And I can get into definitions of those. Um, but inherently, the, the reason we're focused on these solutions is kind of simple. People have known for decades that there's a lot of health consequences to overconsumption of animal products. People, I think, have largely understood environmental impacts. But at the end of the day, people want to make um, their food choices based on the same drivers that people have wanted for generations. What tastes good? What's affordable to me? What's convenient? What, what, how much time do I have to spend in the kitchen? So um, we focus on counterparts to animal products. And I'll just use chicken as an example to kind of make this case. To get one calorie of consumable protein in the form of chicken meat, we have to feed a chicken nine calories of food. At the same time, chicken causes 40 times more of a contribution to climate change than just eating legumes like soy or pea. So it's, there's just such an inherent inefficiency in animal agriculture. We think it is ripe to be disrupted um, with these other products. Jason Clay, though, you think that you know, the way um, factory farms or industrial uh, uh, operations are actually quite efficient, that they are actually, the way things are done today, that they're not as bad as a lot of uh, environmentalists or coastal people might think. Tell us about that. Well, I think the reason a group like World Wildlife Fund is interested in food is, frankly, because we care what its impacts are on the environment. Today, we use 40% of the frost-free part of the planet to produce food. So if we have to double food production by 2050, increase it by 50%, we're not prepared to say we need to have 80% of the land in food production or 60% of the land in food production, which is what a business as usual case would imply. We're saying you have got to intensify production and you've got to do it smart. You've got to do it sustainably. But how can we 
not increase beyond the 40% we're already using, but increase more nutrients from that. That's that's real challenge, I think, for the 21st century. And part of it is is going to be just being smarter. Part of it is going to be eliminating food waste. We throw away a third to 40% of food in every country in the world. Some of it's lost in the field, some of it's lost in literally in translation, and some of it's lost in, in the consumption arena. But we think that food waste in the U.S. is mostly consumer-facing. So it's portion size. It's what you throw out of your refrigerator. It's what restaurants throw away. It's what buffets throw away at the end of the day, et cetera, et cetera. We've just been doing some work looking at food waste in, in fresh fruits and vegetables uh, in eight states, looking at 15 different uh, products. And let's just pick on one for a minute, romaine lettuce. Hearts of romaine are a real fad now. Hearts of romaine, the way they're produced, because you strip away all the green leaves from the head, you leave 70% of the romaine in the field. 70%. It's estimated by Kroger and some of the other grocery store chains that, con that people are actually consuming about 10% of the romaine that's produced now. So 90% of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with producing romaine are not even going towards consumption. They're being added on to the 10% that we eat. We've got to get smarter about how we do that. By contrast, about 2 to 3% of artichokes are left in the field because they've been much smarter about how they manage the markets for artichokes. And they sell every piece of it. They sell the stems. They sell, they sell the baby ones. They sell the big ones. They can them. They do all kinds of things, but they do not have waste. So we've got to figure out how to reduce waste on, of every different product uh, all over the planet, because that's probably the easiest strategy to get enough food that we need by 2050. But efficiency and productivity and just managing with metrics, kind of knowing what the impacts are and reducing them. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the food we eat and where it comes from. Coming up... Do the benefits of sustainable farming outweigh the costs? Just because something is cheaper today, doing it a certain way, doesn't mean that if you continue along that path, it's going to be cheaper in the future. That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for the Climate One podcast comes in part from Villanova University. Passionate about sustainability? Villanova University offers graduate degrees in sustainable engineering. The master's and the PhD can be completed as a full-time or part-time student, online or on campus, and are available for engineers and non-engineers alike. Villanova's interdisciplinary program explores the full environmental, social, and economic aspects of sustainable engineering. VUSustainableEngineering.com. We continue now with Climate One at Duke University. Greg Dalton is talking about global food production with Jason Clay of the World Wildlife Fund, Annie Cole of the Good Food Institute, and Ashley Allen of the Mars Corporation. Here's Greg. Actually, Alan, let's talk about land impacts. You're a specialist in, in land use, so tell us, how do we really know that's, that, say, palm oil or soy that's supposed to be sustainably farmed, uh, not clearing uh, the rainforest? How do we really know? That's a really good question. Uh, and actually, it's something that a lot of companies are putting their heads together and, and trying to piece through and tackle right now. Um, last fall, Mars launched our Sustainable in a Generation Plan. And that includes goals on climate change, so cutting our greenhouse gas emissions for our full value chain, not just what we do within our factories, but our suppliers, farmers, down to the user. Cutting that by two-thirds by 2050, with an interim goal to cut it 27% by 2025. Coupled with that, we have a land goal, following just along the same principle that Jason mentioned, with the idea that the world has only so much land that can go under agriculture. So we set uh, out to figure out what our land footprint was, and then we said, 
this is it. We're, we're capping our land footprint at this level of what it was in our best estimate in 2015 for all of the goods that are grown that go into our products. And um, everything we do now is going to be really focused on helping farmers increase their productivity, looking at places where things are grown most efficiently and effectively and focusing there. Also looking at deforestation and making sure that we're uh, considering that in our, our choices for, for what we buy uh, to put into our products. So that's all part of our goal. Is that going to increase price pressure to do those things differently? Because oftentimes it's cheaper to you know, mow down that part of the rainforest and put some cattle in or some soy. So is that going to put pressure on prices? Will you do things even if it means it costs a little more? Well, certainly for, for us, cost is part of our business, of course. But we do have a commitment to invest in sustainability. And so cost is not the only consideration that we look at. We do realize that in some cases you have to invest in sustainability for the long term. But this long term idea is really what's important. Just because something is cheaper today, doing it a certain way, doesn't mean that if you continue along that path, it's going to be cheaper in the future. And we feel like making decisions sustainably will actually lead to more stability with supply of these ingredients and also more stability in the price over the long term. Jason Clay, think, Mars is a private company. Cargill is a private company. Do, do private companies have more leeway to do this sort of thing that she's talking let, about? Let me just pick up on, on your earlier question, and then I'll come back to that. But it, it seems to me that when we pay in this country about 10% of our income for food, and that figure is going down, not up, that we're just not paying the true cost of production. Uh, many people blame that on in the US and Europe and other places on subsidies, and subsidies are actually a big thing. We have about $560 billion of subsidies on the planet today. Uh, but actually, the largest subsidies are in China and India, larger than the US and Europe combined. In China's case, it's twice the US and, and India combined. But I think the big issue that prices don't get at are externalities. We're not paying for soil erosion. We're not paying for deforestation. We're not paying for habitat loss, for biodiversity loss, for pollution, for greenhouse gas emissions, for carbon. We're not paying for any of those things. And, and what that means is that uh, we are allowing production systems to exist uh, and, in fact, to erode the base, the natural resource base that future generations are going to depend on. If you look at it another way, the biggest subsidizer of our food system is the planet itself. And the planet is subsidizing at a rate that's 10 times higher than all the governments combined. That can't go on forever. That's like living on the principal in your bank account rather than the interest. Eventually, you run out of money. And that's what's happening in this case. We've got to figure out how to start charging for the real price of food. And making a price for carbon would be a huge step forward. Annie Cole, some of the largest food companies uh, that have accumulated great wealth, partly by externalizing the, the socializing those those costs, uh, you know, Cargill, Tyson, you know, some of them are, are tiptoeing into this area of food innovation. Oftentimes, large industrial giants are not often thought of as the, the best or fastest innovators. Tell us how they're coming into this new area of food innovation. Sure. So. Um, we, we see them taking sort of, there's, there's multiple paths that they can take. Some are doing R&D within their own brands and diversifying. Some of them are taking ownership stakes. So um, Tyson's, for instance, took an ownership stake in Memphis Meats, which is going to be um, a, a clean meat, it is a clean meat company that's going to have a product in the marketplace, hopefully within about five years and at price parity within 10. And um, clean meat is not a product for people who already eat plant-based. This is not to allow a plant-based eater to eat meat. This is. Why don't to, you explain what, what you? Yeah, maybe I should take a second. Meat. So, um, plant-based meat, I think, is what most of us understand. It's using plants to create a meat analog. And to Jason's earlier point, we haven't even touched the surface of the innovation that still can come in um, the plant-based side of things. So, I want to make that clear. 250,000 plant species on the planet, about 150 have been fully or even remotely explored and, and even fewer are used regularly. Clean meat is an entirely different process where you take a very small sample sesame, si sesame seed size biopsy of animal cells, actual animal cells, connective tissue, muscle, fat, you put those cells into a nutrient-rich medium and you proliferate the cells 
without growing the whole animal. So you are growing just the meat tissue. Um, obviously, it's easier to grow something like ground beef than it is to grow a, a T-bone steak. That requires more structure. It's a more advanced process. And at scale, this should look very similar to craft brewing. Um, it's, it's a process very similar to that. Let's talk about packaging. Ashley, I want to talk to you about the one thing to uh, reduce the carbon footprint of, of food inside, but packaging is a big part of the environmental impact. What are you doing on packaging to recycle them, to reduce the impact of it? You know, when you look at packaging, there's two streams to think about. So for Mars, we have a huge upstream packaging piece where the various goods are getting shipped to retail, ingredients are shipped to us, and that area of packaging, uh, we're focusing on 100% recyclability. So that's that's like all of the big boxes and, and things like that. Crates. And getting all of those exactly um, recycled or reused. On the downstream packaging side, so this is really what people see when they're opening up their candy bar. Obviously, the number one focus there is food quality and food safety. We want to make sure the food is protected. After that, we want to make sure that the wrapper is, you know, first of all, uses as few materials as possible. So as much as we can reduce the amount of materials that go into that package, that's going to reduce its overall input impact. Then once you get to the recycle, that's where company innovation has basically gotten ahead of the infrastructure needed to, to recycle those materials. So we've really focused on minimizing, making the, the wrappers uh, as light as possible, and now uh, we're working in a, a group called the New Plastics Economy to basically work with partners that focus on the infrastructure side of waste collection and make sure that the right options are available to actually recycle those materials. So we're working on that, and it's, it's one of our goals moving forward that, um, that we're really focusing on. Annie Cole, what are some climate-friendly foods that people can eat? If you want to be a healthy person and healthy for the planet, uh, other than clean meat, which can't, I guess you've never tasted it. Most people have not tasted it yet. I call no. it test tube meat or fake meat, mock meat. Um, what are some climate-friendly things that people can eat? Sure. Well, so obviously no one is arguing that the uh, probably the most climate-friendly diet is like a whole food plant-based diet, and that's also probably the best diet for all of us to be on. I think the reality is... Um, for most of us, I know me, I don't, I don't have time to, to cook and eat that way 24-7. So I would encourage people to check out um, several of the, the plant-based products that are in the marketplace today. Um, when you think about meat, um, it's a high-fat, cholesterol-laden, no-fiber food. When you think about plant-based meat, you don't get any cholesterol. Depending on the source, there's going to be some fat in there. They're going to use some oils. Um, but you're also going to get fiber. So I, I'm not a health specialist, um, and we really, we're really big proponents of, like, let people eat what they want. Nobody has to eat according to any diet plan that doesn't suit them. Let's put, get more products in the marketplace that allow people to eat what they like. Jason Clay, what do you think is a climate-friendly diet? Well, I think, I think we need to get metrics around, get our arms around what, what the current diet is and how that varies around the world, and then what would be more friendly about that diet. Because we have 7.5 billion food experts on the planet, and you're not going to tell them what to eat. They're going to eat what they want to eat. So what are they eating already? We don't know what the climate impacts of it are. We really don't have good data on this. And we don't have data, good data on waste. You know, we don't know where it's happening or why it's happening. You know, I, I think we need to get informed, and then we need to begin to get much more involved in these kind of discussions. But if greenhouse gas is going to be one of the metrics, and I think we need to be looking at optimal solution rather than just trying to maximize one particular issue. So we need to look at water. In a, in a water-stressed planet, we need to look at water. We need to look at greenhouse gas emissions. We need to look at soil, soil health. You know, what can take food production out of soil? Maybe it's going to be vertical ag and hydroponics using very narrow light streams that are only maybe two bandwidths so that we can actually produce with a lot less heat. So we don't need to cool those systems down. So we can start producing fresh leafy greens in the middle of cities, in food deserts, using the power and water and heat coming off of stranded assets like thermal power plants, like natural gas power plants. We could use all those things to produce a lot of food locally. We need to get much more creative about our solutions. But... If people eat what they want, 90%, 95% of the people on the planet today want to eat more animal protein. So how do we make that 
better than it is today? And how do we work on these other solutions in parallel to make them better or make them exist when they don't really exist today? Because getting to 2050 is going to be a journey of a thousand cuts of efficiencies and productivities and all different kinds of things. And there's not going to be one size fits all. There's not, there's not going to be a single diet for people on the planet. It's just not going to work because people have very different cultures. They're going to want to maximize different things. How can they be better informed to make choices that are going to allow us all to live into the next century? Let's, get, let's let Annie get back I, on that. I, just, I do have numbers in front of me here that I, I would love your audience to guess how many burgers Americans eat a year, right? The number, I'll let everyone take a second, 10 billion. Okay, so um, the World Resources Institute said that if we could replace just 30% of a beef patty with mushrooms, which doesn't sound bad to me, that sounds great. Um, it's the equivalent of 2.3 million cars off the road. It's the water usage of 2.6 million Americans. And it's bringing land back into new uses about the size of Maryland. That's if you just put 30% mushrooms. Think about what happens when you replace that beef burger entirely with plants, right? The numbers are even bigger. So, so, so what if we, if we take half of the greenhouse gas emissions out of beef and pork and poultry? And we can do that in the U.S. Already producers are doing that. So why don't we pursue these two parallel streams at the same time? Because that's where we're going to get to a solution faster, I think. And we need to be thoughtful about simply putting land into plant-based production. One of the biggest impacts today in the U.S. of food production is plowing up grasslands. It is the U.S. equivalent of deforestation in Brazil. In fact, in the last decade, the U.S. and Canada have exceeded Brazilian deforestation in terms of grassland conversion along a strip from the western part of Kansas in the Great Plains all the way down to Mexico. In fact, if you look at the areas, and if anybody's interested, I can provide you a map afterwards, but if you look at the areas, we are plowing up the exact same region that caused the Dust Bowl 80 years ago. And it's going to happen again because we're going to have higher temperatures. We're not going to have grass to keep those lands in place. In Iowa, we already see 20 times greater soil erosion going into the rivers. Soil is the most precious natural resource to produce food, any kind of food. So we've got to keep grass right side up in order to keep that, that soil there. And in fact, for many parts of the US, some type of grazer is going to be the most efficient system to produce food on that. So we're talking about food at, at, at Climate One. I want to talk a little bit about, actually um, talk about a lot of sustainability, companies in sustainability do a lot of things on their brand and perhaps for pressure from, from investors. And I hear from U.S. senators that companies that are very green in their supply chain, et cetera, don't put that muscle into the policy process. When they go to Washington, D.C., they don't advocate for climate in the way. They, they, they care more about taxes, trade, immigration. So what does Mars do in Washington, D.C. to support sustainable policy that supports your business? Yeah, you know, this is something, we're part of this group called Ceres mm -hmm. that basically tries to take the power of companies and use it to influence uh, policy with a focus on the U.S. Um, and it's something that, that we've really been advocating for too, trying to get more companies to, to have that voice. It, we think it's really powerful. So uh, we've been up on Capitol Hill recently um, talking about, in particular, renewable energy. We think it's something that uh, is, should be a nonpartisan issue. We think it's something that we can give a strong business case for and really just make the point that we have to do everything we can to make renewable electricity more accessible for people, to, to make sure that um, electricity developers have uh, a sort of level playing field with other sources uh, and, and that we're really valuing um, those kinds of, of electricity. So, you know, we have to start having these conversations in the public space and, and, um, and that's really policy is the only way that we're going to have a, a full solution on, on something like climate change. Jason Clay, you're in Washington, D.C. I, th I think that our strategy has been to move the companies so that we don't have to worry about educating 7.5 billion people. Because if we can move the top 100 companies, they buy 25% of all the commodities that, that touch the most important places we care about. 
We've actually begun to modify that now. We've seen that those companies, we work with 70 of the 100 largest companies and other NGOs work with another 20. There are just about 10 troglodytes out there that don't want to work with anybody. But we're, we're finding that now we need to work with groups of these companies to, to address common issues because sustainability, believe it or not, has gone from not being an issue to being an issue to now being a pre-competitive issue where everybody needs the commodities they buy just like their competitors do. And nobody has a dedicated supply chain anymore. Everybody buys from the same person. On any given day, one Coke will buy from one producer and, and Pepsi will buy the next day. Uh, or Mars will buy and Barry Calibut will buy or Cargill will buy or somebody the next day. So all these companies are going to have to work together to fix this. And they can't do it just through a voluntary approach. Because companies try to buy from the better producers, right? The better producers don't cause the problem. If you look at a performance curve, the top producers are the ones that are actually doing it well. And those are the ones that companies like to be buying from. The bottom 25% of producers cause 50% of the impact and only produce about 10% of the product. So we really need to move the bottom. And you do that by getting companies as a group and NGOs as a group to go together to government and ask for the same thing. If one company goes to government, they're not going to get anything. If two companies go, not going to get anything. If 50 companies and 10 NGOs go, it's a lot easier for governments to move because everybody's in favor of it. Ashley Allen, how important is the Paris Climate Accord? A lot of corporations came to Paris. You know, corporate America was behind the Paris Climate Accord. You know, IBM, stalwarts, you know, General Motors. How important is it to you? The Paris Agreement is very important to us. I mean, it, we were part of that uh, big corporate voice that came out and said, uh, we are still in, you know, even after the Paris Accord had already been passed, already been ratified, and the, the Trump administration made their announcement that uh, they were going to pull out, we came out and said, we are still in. We're still in on this. And, and that's reflected in our goals. So our climate goal that I mentioned earlier is based on the goals of the Paris Agreement to keep global warming under two degrees. Uh, and the way that, that we've worked out our goal with the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which WWF and, and others have uh, designed, is to basically determine, uh, if we all work together with our peer companies, what is our fair share of that solution to getting to under two degrees for climate change. The Mars family are very passionate about these sustainability issues, and that's why it really becomes a major part of, of our, uh, our business model. Um, but it, we really do feel like it makes business sense. And, you know, because we're a family-owned company, we're able to take a long-term view and say, what can we do today? How are our decisions today going to impact the future? And how can we make a better future for us, for our company, but also for people and for pets that use our products? You've been listening to Climate One at Duke University. Coming up, Greg Dalton talks with Karen Leibowitz about sustainable restauranting. What we're really trying to do is promote the idea that food can be part of the climate solution. That's up next when Climate One continues. We've been talking about getting food from farm to table in the age of climate change. We turn now from the kitchen table to the restaurant table. Karen Leibowitz is co-founder of The Perennial, a sustainable restaurant in San Francisco. She's also executive director of the Perennial Farming Initiative, which promotes regenerative agriculture and encourages other restaurants to take up planet-healthy practices. Here's Greg's conversation with Karen Leibowitz. So a lot of people go into a restaurant, they sit down, and there's a menu that's written by someone who's basically saying, we're good people, we care about you, we care about the earth, this is sustainable, farm-to-table. What's wrong with that? What are the limitations of that? Well, I don't think of it so much as what's wrong with it as the potential to um, start a fuller conversation about where the food is coming from. So I often see um, at the bottom of menus, we source organic, local, etc., whenever possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm trying to do with my restaurant, The Perennial, here in San Francisco, is say, we 
are actually engaging with farmers to make food part of the climate solution. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. most people don't know um, that there have been new um, advances in agriculture, um, which allow people to test the soil and grow food in such a way that actually draws down CO2, which is a greenhouse gas. And even meat can be raised to be climate beneficial. And so we're really talking about the nitty gritty of what's happening in the sourcing and not just whenever possible we're getting organic. And also to encourage diners to make those kinds of choices for themselves. So it's not just that we're saying come here and spend your money here, but also when you're spending your money in the grocery store, you're making choices that have impacts on the climate, on the economy, and um, to take it beyond our restaurant. You could think of it as Farm to Table 2.0. And you named your restaurant Perennial. Explain what a perennial is and, and why it's better, that, that type of food is better. While we were researching the restaurant, which we conceived of as a very sustainable um, restaurant, we um, went to visit a rancher nearby named John Wick, who um, had been working to manage his cattle in such a way that it was actually climate beneficial. And he explained the importance of perennial grasses in that process because they have such deep roots, they can pull down more CO2, but also because they grow from year to year without um, having to be replanted, they sustain an ecosystem beneath the soil, um, which is also drawing down carbon. Mm. And on our way home from John Wick's Ranch, we renamed the restaurant The Perennial. And so you also are trying to do closed loop cooking. So explain to us how the the fish and the worms and, you know, come from the plate, the whole circle. Yeah, um, we were distraught to learn that the food system, by some measures, accounts for up to 50% of greenhouse gas emissions. The the UN um, calculated it. If you include deforestation for Mm -hmm. agriculture, it's a huge amount. And then food waste is actually an enormous component in that. And I read that if food waste were a nation, it would be the third worst emitter of greenhouse gases after the U.S. and China. So we wanted to be really thoughtful about food waste, both in terms of avoiding it and taking whatever unavoidable waste and doing something beneficial with it. So we do have some kitchen scraps. It happens. You know, you can't eat every vegetable skin. I, heard, I read that you reuse the trout bones, so that's pretty... Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm a big booster of stock of all uh-huh. kinds. There are a lot of things that you can do with bones to boost flavor, but, you know, eventually there will be something at the end. And so we feed those to worms and larvae at our greenhouse. They take the energy in the food and become food for fish. And we feed the fish, and the fish fertilize the water, also known as poop. And the water, that water that has all of that nutrition, is then used to water the plants, though we do strain it. And then we grow lettuces and herbs and and things like that that we grow in an aquaponic format, which means they're on floats, so they on rafts, so they don't go into soil. And the idea there is that we really believe deeply in healthy soil. But there are a lot of plants that are not that well suited to soil, like lettuces, where if you pour the water in, it just kind of goes down into the soil. And aquaponics, which is the style that we're doing in the greenhouse, where you have the plants floating in the water, is 10 times more efficient with water, which obviously is an issue for us here in California, where we've been struggling with drought for some time. So to catch that, the the food scraps feed the worms, the worms feed the fish, the fish poop feeds the plants, and the plants feed the people. Right. I heard what you said, that that cows can be part of an ecosystem to actually help grasses grow, to put carbon from the air into the soil. But the reality is that that meat production, animal protein production, still has a huge carbon impact. And if you really wanted to be a climate-friendly restaurant, did you consider not having meat at all, any any animal protein. Right. There was a really fascinating study that came out in February that actually looked at this kind of regenerative agriculture approach to cattle. And it it had to revise the estimates for the impact. So previously, I think it was um, supposed to be like six kilograms 
carbon dioxide, um, and it went down to negative nine. And so I think the science is still under debate, but I think it's a it's a very common belief that meat is always bad for the environment. And so we did think very seriously about not including meat on the menu until we understood that there were ways of making animals part of a climate solution. So it's not only not as bad, it's actually positive for the environment. And then within that, we are sourcing the animals as large cuts, so like whole or quarter animals, and finding a place for every part of the animal so that it's not just picking and choosing the prime cuts and using the bar um, and the restaurant as part of a larger ecosystem has allowed us to have a burger and have um, some items be served as roasts and, you know, finding different places for everything. And of course, we also have staff meal. So that's where the really odd bits go. And you're on the board of something called the Zero Footprint that's trying to help other restaurants. How are you trying to help other restaurants around the country uh, reduce their waste, think more about the what they put on the menu, where they get it from, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, we started Zero Footprint actually even before the perennial um, as a way to share information, which can be really hard to access, especially for restaurateurs and chefs who are somewhat harried as it is. <laughs> so we worked with a climate analysis firm called Three Degrees and got the life cycle assessment of our restaurants and learned where we could make improvements and then also how to offset the emissions that remained using food-related carbon offset projects. And what we're really trying to do is promote the idea that food can be part of the climate solution and that customers can seek out restaurants that are leading in that way by finding climate neutral restaurants. So Karen, this all sounds very nice. How much does it cost? Is there a cost premium for this kind of food as there often is for other, you know, climate friendly green products? You know, for us, the cost has not been passed on to the consumer. One of the reasons is that it is important to us that the restaurant be a kind of vehicle for meaning and a a kind of occasion for conversation on a wide basis. And so, so we have a bar menu that's more affordable even than the dining room menu. And um, we try to work with nonprofits that want to have their events, you know, to get people to come in and have this kind of conversation about food and climate, which I think we've overlooked. You know, so much of the climate change conversation has revolved around energy, transportation. Tailpipes and smokestacks. Yeah, Yeah. and um, a lot of it actually comes from the food system. And the great thing about the food system is it actually has the potential to uh, turn back the clock on climate change, to draw down the greenhouse gases and put them back where they belong. I mean, to put carbon in the soil. I mean, as far as I can tell, farmers are historically resistant to um, talking about climate change, but are beginning to recognize the effects of it in their daily work. And the soil erosion of conventional farming is not sustainable for them on a personal level. And so we have really been encouraged to see people willing to experiment with ways of managing their land, which is not only better for the planet, but also better for them and better for their produce, better for their workers, and so on. Lastly, diet tips for a climate-friendly diet. What should people eat if they care about the climate? Well, I think that people should not be buying meat from um, factory farms. So if it is really cheap, you have to ask, you know, how am I paying for it in the long run? So grass-fed beef is better than factory-farmed beef. But I think that the importance of farmers markets really can hardly be overstated because if you go to your farmer and ask them questions about how the food was raised, you're already sending a message that there is value in that in the marketplace and ask them about their soil, you know, and we're actually working on a healthy soil guide to help consumers connect with farmers who are prioritizing the planet. And um, what we want is to create something similar to the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, mm-hmm. where all over the country people can find you know, the best choices for seafood. 
we want to create something like that for um, food that comes from the land, which is, of course, most of our food. So a soil health, we know that where this corn came from, this wheat came from, it wasn't a bunch of uh, industrial fertilizers. It was, yeah, the soil was cared for in the growing that. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think most people think about organic as beneficial to their health and less about the benefits of organic to the climate. And workers. There's, and workers, yeah. indeed. And um, the Rodale Institute is actually developing a new certification called Regenerative Organic, which is not only organic, but also restoring the soil. And that's important not only for drawing down CO2, but also improving nutrition. Um, like healthy soil gives rise to plants with many more nutrients, which in turn makes them more flavorful. I can talk at length about um, <laughs> that, but um, I'll leave it at you know, the carrots that we get now don't taste like the carrots that were grown 100 years ago because they're grown in degraded soil. Soil is sexy and very important. Some of the biggest <laughs> optimists that I uh, talk to are people who are the soil is a big part of the solution. As you yeah. said at the beginning, you know, we've taken carbon out of the ground, burned it, put it in the air, and then there's a way to kind of bring it back home into the ground and with healthier soils as part of that. Yeah, I think we have focused far too much on soil chemistry, sort of putting nitrogen into the ground, and not enough on soil biology, how to maintain the life in the soil. And that involves um, restoring soil carbon and um, this kind of healthy ecosystem of the soil. So that's what we look for. Greg Dalton has been talking about restorative restauranting with Karen Leibowitz, co-founder of The Perennial in San Francisco. We also heard a discussion on global food production and climate change, recorded in front of a live audience at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. Greg's guests were Ashley Allen, Senior Manager for Climate and Land at the Mars Corporation, Annie Cole, Director of Communications at the Good Food Institute, and Jason Clay, Senior Vice President of Food and Markets at the World Wildlife Fund. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.